0: what? I believe that I've forgotten something. Now, what can it be? Oh, I remember what it is. I knew I wouldn't forget. I just kept reminding myself. In fact, I tied a string around, around my finger so I wouldn't forget. See? And I didn't. You never can be too careful.
1: Margot Mutter.
2: I'm Bex Galt.
1: I'm Lila Sturgis. And And we're we're out to to get get you.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Welcome back, listeners. I, as ever, am your unreliable narrator. Bex is a writer and academic in the realm of fantasy literature, and we're plumbing the depths of queer text and horror. Along the way, we'll be joined by the people who love these movies, and in some cases, Downright loathe them, and we'll be talking about what they mean to them and why. And today we are swinging for the fences with Robert (coughs) Altick's notorious 1983 summer slasher cult classic Sleepaway Camp, and batter up! It's Lila Sturges. Lila is the author of countless comics, from her classic work at DC and Vertigo to bringing Dune's magic to the comics page, as well as her original graphic novel Girl Haven and much, much more. And today, she is our guest to talk about one of the thornier historical representations of trans bodies on film. So, Lila, how are you today?
1: I'm good, although I am definitely thinking, like, what the... Oh, when you told me,
0: Um, I was like, fuck it, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it. Like, we're going to get in there. (laughs) Let's come out swinging. Right, because this is a really controversial film in terms of queer text in horror. Let me, let me just, before we get into anything, else, let me just ask you, what was on your mind?
1: What was on my mind? When you were like, let's do this. Oh, I just, you know, because I feel like sometimes in the trans community, we tend to shy away from things that might feel controversial or that it might have some kind of like a dangerous edge to them and i feel like this is definitely a text that has a a sharp rusty edge on it yeah right? that's a and dull so... hatchet shellacked with <laughs> children's blood <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it, yeah a boat propeller covered in the blood of innocence and if we're going to discuss it it's like we have to really put some some warnings out there that like if you are trans and you watch this film i can't be held responsible for your mental or emotional state after you have seen it right because let's not bury the (laughs) lead the reason we're
0: able to talk about this film 40 years later believe it or not 2023 is the 40th anniversary of sleepaway camp and the reason we're able to still talk about this is because it has such a moment of trans misogyny and exploitation of trans bodies that is notorious you know about this shot before you know about the film and you hear about it but until you see it you can't you
1: can't really reckon with it until you see and hear it until you see and hear it yes the 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 voiceover question Uh mark uh is really half of the battle that you're fighting Mm -hmm. when you're reckoning with that that moment and i don't know do we just say what the moment is Yeah, let's go ahead and say
0: it so real quick roundabout on sleepaway camp folks sleepaway camp is the story of a sole survivor of a family boating accident one of a pair of twins eight years later she goes back to the summer camp where she first lost her family people who mess with her start to turn up dead it's a bit of a whodunit but it's not really that (laughs) hard to be quite honest And in the last moment where Angela is revealed to be the killer, you get this shot of her butt ass naked covered in blood, holding a hatchet, making this face. But it's a completely bizarre, horrifying juxtaposition of an adult man's body over this petite young girl's haunted face. And it's made in this uh, dental floss thin mask they made of Melissa Rhodes. It, It doesn't look real. It's horrid. We'll put pictures in the show notes, but when you see it, you are completely taken out of whatever your
1: mm-hmm. experience And it's the final shot of the film. Yeah,
0: it's the final shot. There's no follow-up. That is the twist, and it has haunted us till this day.
1: <laughs> Once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's one of those things. And, and also, the character is making this for reasons unknown to anyone but the director. The inhuman growling hissing yeah. sounds it's demonic it's not mm-hmm. something
0: a human should be able to do it's, it's not this human perfect yeah. storm of, well well there's no way to say it was a well-intentioned practical effect because you were never going to expose a trans child's body as no. a whore and be well intentioned and their alternative
1: was not any better sure wasn't so true now i think that one of the questions that we're going to come back to Margot and and bex is what does it mean when we talk about Angela's gender? Yeah. Um, and is Angela actually trans? These are all fascinating questions that the text itself is not prepared to answer in any way, shape, and or form. Not oh. only
2: is it not prepared to answer, doesn't seem interested in answering. It's, it's done. <laughs> it wants no. the, the rug pull of that last shot, and then it's done with that. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: Fascinating. Uh, Before we go any further, this seems like a really good time to pull our first question. So We've got another, so we'll bring that up when it feels natural, but this is from Emily, and she's asking something that very much fits with what we're getting into here. Uh, So Emily writes, Hey, Margot, Rebecca, and Lila. Very excited about the new pod, especially with y'all covering Sleepaway Camp as one of the early episodes. The biggest selling point of the film and what most people talk about is the twist-ending reveal of Angela's true gender. As a trans person, I find Sleepaway Camp to be a complex film to be dissected depending on how you view Angela and their actions within the story. <laughs> so do we. Mm -hmm. I can understand that frustration and anger with having an identity thrust upon you and being in a body that doesn't conform to your gender identity, but the film does present the trans body as shocking and horrifying compared to the cis bodies in the picture. My question is, can we, or how can we reclaim Angela away from cis straight people? Thanks, Emily. And I feel like that's exactly what we've got to be exploring here, is how we do that.
1: I think there's an even uh, another question, mm-hmm. which is, do we want to?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. that is it valuable to spend the time doing that? I have a love-hate relationship with this film. I do lean towards, it's worthy of discussions of reclamation and what that means, and how we contend with the effects of it in our history. I think
1: that's fair. I, I, I think there's nothing... In the film itself, that exonerates its portrayal of this character, I feel like this this film is incredibly misogynistic, yeah, um, and that its its primary goal is to express its loathing for femininity, and that Angela, the character of Angela, is caught in the crosshairs of this. Um, And we can delve into that (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Yes, so. I wanted to bring that up early because that's
0: what we're going to be talking about here. But to pull back for just a second, I think you are the same age as Angela and Ricky in Sleepaway came. Like, you were a teenager when that movie came out, Oh, right? my
1: God. Don't remind <laughs> me. What year did it Listen, come out? I'm
0: close to 40.
2: I'm,
1: I'm feeling it. <laughs> I would I would mention. It definitely has an early 80s vibe, right? 83. Um, is it 83? 83. It yeah, it came out in 83. 83. I turned I turned thirteen in nineteen hundred and eighty three. That is correct.
0: So were you aware of this film growing no, up? Because
1: that's no, not at all. Really? I no. I had never even heard of it until many many years later, um, as an adult watching it with. Um, I have a group nice. of friends. We have a shitty movie club, and this film came mm-hmm. up as sort of a notorious shitty movie to watch. And I didn't know about the the twist ending or anything like that. And wow. I had. I had come out to myself as trans but not out to the people in the shitty movie club when we watched oh. this film. So I had a weird emotional experience I can imagine. Watching it for the first time that uh, rewatching it now I didn't have. But at, in that moment it was very very unsettling. Also similar to my experience watching Hellraiser 4 where there is a weird yeah. trans mm. joke um, that yeah. comes absolutely out of nowhere <laughs> so many do yes. but yeah this one this one is different because it's the main character of the film yeah. it's the the protagonist. sensible protagonist yes and that's weird to have someone who is
0: the final girl and the monster combined mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. one there and have that gender fuckery going on it's weird i love it i find it fascinating that you didn't know about the twist going in, because it's usually the thing that proceeds in its reputation. Right. Like me, I grew up knowing about it, and, and like any queer kid, I knew my way around some dissociation. So mm-hmm. I would just periodically memory hole it over 15 years, and then I would see it again, and then the dam would weaken. And, you you know, this is very much the opposite of your work with the uh, Lumberjane graphic novels, but a, a summer camp experience <laughs> is something that you've spent a good amount of time thinking about.
1: That is true. Real two I mean, ends of a spectrum there. <laughs> this is, it is really two polar opposites in terms of, of content, intent, uh, certainly, you know, authorial mm-hmm. intent. Yeah, it's, it's probably more akin to House of Mystery, a book I wrote a while back, which was actually a, oh, yeah. a horror mm-hmm. comic, but that was also a very different book, too. That, that book was me working out my trans issues, not realizing that that's what I was doing. So, it's a whole other kind of a thing that's happening. God, that's relatable. But I don't think that's what's going on in Sleepaway Camp at all. <laughs> yeah. I doubt it
0: severely. <laughs> what about you, Bax? What What was your history with seeing or first engaging Lanky with Sleepaway I Camp?
2: knew the twists prior to going into that film. Let's hell out myself as being the irritatingly young host in this. I was born 99. So I mm,
1: a child.
2: <laughs> so, yeah, so truly I'm, yeah, 23 now. So did not grow up with it in any way, shape, or form, but knew the twist going in, watched it for the first time, and was just like, that, like I said off recording, I was just like, that, that was a movie. Someone shot that with a camera, <laughs> cut it and, One he, camera that. it, and then people watched it. That sure did happen. <laughs> Everyone was just fine with that, I guess. So yeah, it was a bizarre experience, I think. And I think for me, part of what makes it so bizarre is it's so tonally unsettling. There's a, uh-huh. a meat, there's a core to this movie that is, all right, maybe not anything groundbreaking, but a, a perfectly respectable little summer camp slasher. And then it throws in that, that final shot and you're just like, okay, but... But this is something totally different entirely now. And it sort of colored the rest of the film.
1: Oh, it absolutely recontextualizes
2: every single thing
1: you've seen up until that point. Mm-hmm.
0: Which is something that happens with gender yeah. reveals in movies. A lot of times you'll get the reveal and then people will track back through the movie to see if they can to see yeah. if they can clock them. And even without that final shot, there's still so much tucked into that movie that is utterly bizarre when it comes to dealing with gender and sexuality and puberty all those dreamlike sequences after the boat accident with her dad and yeah. aunt martha are just
1: on another level and it, i feel like we need to spend some time talking about aunt martha yes. because this character is a choice mm-hmm. this is this is a trained actor playing the Desiree this Gold. is not right this is not like the, the witch from Troll 2 who simply cannot act, right? This is someone who could conceivably yeah. act, um, who is choosing to perform this bizarre, yes. campy yes, it's camp. caricature of womanhood, mm-hmm. right? From which, her costuming
0: being so patently bizarre, except inside of her own home, which is equally surreal, to her affectations and her absent-mindedness, she is doing a very camp performance of what is commonly considered mm-hmm. the neurotic mother
1: Yeah. and
0: all the hodgepodge yeah. of negative stereotypes it comes with but she's just such a delight to watch she is no i agree i mean she just passed a couple of years ago i believe mm-hmm. but that performance sets up what is camp later Though you can tell she wanted to deliver something like that, whereas later in the film, that camp is achieved through almost unintentional mm-hmm. sincerity.
1: Yes, and I mean the the rest of the film, w- where the filmmaker is able, has as much of like a, a cinema verite kind of feel as as he's able to muster. Right. So, uh-huh. this is definitely a choice, and I, and I've spent a lot of time thinking. Trying to think through why that choice was made, and I'm I'm not sure that I have an answer that is anything but like really insulting to the filmmaker. That like he he wanted femininity to seem as arch and unreal as possible in comparison to the like the nitty gritty boys will be boys. Like if it's done in the furtherance of like male bonding, like it's just totally okay attitude that the film. That the rest of the film has
0: when you look at the way that all the women characters act towards each other when you look at judy oh and my meg, god judy
1: is the monster
0: judy karen fields absolute monster so sweet in person from what i hear and is wow what a mean girl <laughs> I love
1: her although i think meg meg is the the less moral of the two i think we can give judy the the excuse of being young and you know hypersensitive about her place in her cohort whereas meg is like sleeping with an older man she is a counselor she's supposed to be an authority figure and i feel like she's betraying her duty on every level here
0: another thing with judy is like they talk about it you know like she has now hit puberty and a lot of this film is about mm-hmm. coming to coming to that moment when you're already under pressure and
1: inside a social structure that was not built for yes. you. Yes. And being different. And I think there's there's so many ways you could read Angela's mm-hmm. refusal to shower with the other girls. Um mm-hmm. that and and in the movie the, the the text, you know, like offers this explanation that it's because she hasn't had her period yet, right? But later, obviously, we're going to find out that's not the case. But it's this notion that Angela is different. She knows she's different, and so she can't completely join in these ritualistic things. That, to me, when I think about like sleepaway camps in general, I think about all these mm-hmm. bizarre puberty rituals that people go through, and so many yes. of those are enacted for us in the film. Mm-hmm.
0: And and one thing I wanted to bring up, and this feels like a good enough time to do it is that both the treatment of Angela by Aunt Martha and the kids in the camp by the adults is this commodification of youth and innocence and gender. It's putting people through systems that they don't opt into. And that when it's someone who is decidedly not built for that rigid, thin line, you get to see how that goes very wrong.
1: Yeah, and I think that's where... That's where we can make some tentative comparisons to the trans experience. I think it, you know, it really goes off the rails when we try to say, well, did, you know, does that experience translate into becoming a hissing murderer who will behead someone? I
2: think as well for for me, there's a, a strange sort of, I don't want to say cultural divide, but sort of a little bit because I'm from Scotland, obviously, and. Firstly, we don't have the weather to do camps like that, it's just not feasible ever, <laughs> um, unless you want it to be rained on for several weeks. But camps like that are not, I was going to say uncommon here, they're actually just not really a thing at all. So sleepaway camps in general to me are something that has only ever existed in films and TV shows so seeing Mm -hmm. yeah they really do feel like that that exists in a sphere that is uniquely for heightened experiences it sort of just makes it feel like a, a metaphor constantly for me because i'm just like well this is not something i've ever had an experience with the closest you come to is like like girl guides and brownies which is i guess like (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's not really
2: the same environment at all. You meet once a week, you don't go and spend time with these people constantly. So I think it's there's a strange sort of feeling there where it's like, wow, this is just metaphorical in my brain because I have no real world experience to draw up with that.
0: Well, I think it's telling that summer camps, as certainly not as they were envisioned in movies because those did not exist, but summer camps as an industry don't really exist Mm -hmm. anymore but you know what you were saying about how that heightened reality kind of creates this this ever-present metaphor the film opens with that shot where they're sweeping over the camp Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the
0: film it's camp arrow in argyle new york uh it was actually camp algonquin which was the summer camp that robert hildesip went to and and so you're scanning over the camp and you got this swelling score undercut with whispered voices of summer's past. And it gives this impression that this was once a pure place, but it is no longer because it's been touched by something tainted, something perceived as impure. And we find out that that is Angela, which which is pretty wild considering, but I, I don't know, that just that just came to my mind when you were talking about that heightened experience and how it stands out.
1: I was just thinking about that concept of tainting, right? Um, and how, yeah. what that immediately brings to mind, and something we haven't really talked about yet, is how Angela's attraction to Paul, her love interest, the one's almost decent human being in the film, um, almost. almost yes is is tainted by her negative association with homosexuality, which yes gives you some insight into what Angela's perception of Angela's gender is. Maybe, right? But it, it's hard to say because there's conflicting I, again, the filmmaker put no thought into any of these aspects. Mm-mm. I don't it's like okay, gay, bad. Boy and girl's clothes, bad, equals monster, right? I mean, I think that was the calculus that went on in the the filmmaker's head. That was
0: his whole hook, line, and sinker. When he developed the story, that was what he started with. When he went to film it, he knew that that was the twist, to the point that he left it out of his discussions with the distributor because they didn't think that was gonna fly. I don't know why they didn't think that, it's 1983, (laughs) but they didn't think it was gonna fly. And it's why it's the last thing you see, because it is the money shot. And I think he approached that with the exploitative mindset of spectacle rather than character. But he did make a movie where there's more characterization than most Mm -hmm. slasher films. And like you were saying about how Angela is perceiving their sexuality and their associations with it, it's also interesting that slasher films are typically where you see reinforcement of conservative traditional yes. values. It's usually, instead of the monster being overcome, the monster is a reactive thing that crops up when disobedience, when
1: infidelity or-, or even just promiscuity right any kind of sexuality and it's the sort of like the virginal final girl who has the power there's that's tapping into something deep right and this this is doing something different but it's it's ironic i think that if you didn't have the last five minutes of the film we wouldn't be talking about it 40 years no. later
0: what are you going to talk about I think it does paint the whole movie in a much more nebulous but meaningful it's, way.
2: It's just such like a, a tangled web of things to unpick, right? Because mm-hmm. there's so many different angles you can come at this movie from and yet every single one you're like, okay, I think I've started to get a hold of this. And then you think about another scene and you're like, but also now this doesn't work. So now I have to come at this scene from a different angle. And how does this fit with everything else? Which, again, I I don't think was the intent. I am loath to say it was the intent, really. But it makes for a really interesting film to dissect. And that is what it is. I like it
0: as an artifact.
2: Yeah, it is an artifact more than anything. And it is... I would not put on Sleepaway Camp for fun to watch. That is not something that I would enjoy doing. But to look at it from an angle where I'm like, well, let's take it apart and actually think about what's going on. I think it is worthwhile.
0: Well, I think once you start trying to untangle the mess of sexuality and gender and Sleepaway Camp, you get part of the way on tracking down something comprehensible, but then it falls apart on you again. Because it doesn't really hold up to our modern lens of identity. And that stops us from finding a clean answer on Angela, because I don't think there is one. What you're actually doing is contending with this artifact of queer and trans histories in media, which is the cross-dressing maniac. Despite them thinking it's it's a very shocking depiction, which it is visually, this notion is tradition in film. From Hitchcock's *Psycho*, here in *Sleepaway Camp*, yeah. *Buffalo Bill*. I mean, just a few years earlier was *Dressed to Kill*. So the notion of mentally ill and therefore dangerous trans women is well established by transmission of the monster that is the cross-dressing maniac. I mean, we're still contending with it. I mean, like I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. I think you're you're in Texas, right? I'm in Austin.
2: Yeah, I'm in the United Kingdom. Mm. It's going great. It's
0: going real good.
1: <laughs>
0: so these depictions have a weight yeah. that, that ripples out through time, and it plays to these traditions.
1: You know, and it's interesting, and I, I think you can, you could kind of, like, you could try to paint a psychological portrait of Norman Bates, you could try to paint a psychological portrait of Buffalo Bill because the, the narrative gives us some enough clues to where you could kind of like try to determine something about those characters. Whereas I don't know that this film is smart enough, honestly, to do that. So it, (laughs) it makes it difficult to reckon with it. And then there, there's something, I guess the word I almost want to say is like something almost guttural Mm -hmm. about it. Like, like, it, down to the inhumanness of that final shot. But there's something that feels like, I, I think I mentioned earlier that this this feels kind of like outsider art almost, because so much of what's being conveyed, I think, is outside of the filmmaker's intentions. Yes. And a lot of that is like the, the weird hyper-masculinity stuff and the weird, like, loathing of, of femininity and, and womanhood that I don't think the filmmaker could see past his own prejudices far enough to make any meaningful statement about those things, but it comes across in the film. Like, right, it's
0: not sun. that we're trying to read Rob Hiltzik. It's it's just that we're watching the movie and the movie's reading Rob Hiltzik. <laughs> yeah. Also, <laughs> yes. it's about the reads that we do into texts like this after the fact, what we're bringing to it. Because, I mean, Angela is such a quiet and passive character that people project onto her what they want to see. I mean, which is just misogyny writ large of
1: the male gaze. No, for sure. And and Angela, being such a, a blank slate with no agency, who doesn't even speak for the first,
2: About that, yeah.
1: I don't know, 45 minutes of the film, I want to say, um, speaks rarely, if at all, afterward. Um, so, yeah, that's a character that is mm-hmm. begging to have stuff Projected onto them, anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. I will give Felissa Rose the credit, though. I think that she plays Angela yeah. to that point you know, very well with her eyes. <laughs> I see her, and I'm like, "Oh, I want to
1: protect this sweet little <laughs> girl
0: murderer because she's so precious." And she gets to be sort of that revenge hero. Yeah. You don't really see that queer true, kids get and to do. Honestly,
1: you know, when you look at the, her body count, you know, not much of value was lost. Yeah. Let's be honest, right?
2: Mm -hmm. maybe so
1: I mean Angela Baker diversity (laughs)
0: win
2: there's a sort of catharsis in it right like all these people are set up and you're like I hate all of these people and partly because they are exaggerated uh, archetypes of characters that are built to be hated but also because there's a lot of truth in a lot of them like especially for queer Mm kids, where it's like oh i've been bullied like this i've been fetishized like this i've had this experience and to see angela turn around and just be like well no actually let me just throw some bees at you or (laughs) burn you with some boiling corn let's just do it and part of you there's a little part of you deep inside that's like i kind of wish i could
1: have done that I mean, you really start out on the killer's side, because for whatever reason, the first victim is the absolute worst person. It's the worst, the pedophile rapist, right?
2: Yeah, like, I'm not sad that he's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. What a way to go. (laughs) What a way to go. Yeah, what a way.
0: You do kind of start on our side. Because I knew the twist going in, and I do see those kills as retribution. Though it is strange to me that for a slasher, it, it's so sterile and sexless of a film. And then the times that it does get sexually charged are very odd.
2: Some strange energies happening in this film for sure. Right? On many different axes. The whole
1: business of, of Mel's date with
2: Meg, like, what the mm-hmm. hell? Uh, what? What was happening?
0: So, my theory on this is that, I'm gonna backtrack for just one second, the reason that Meg gets so angry about Angela not responding, and Angela being quiet, is because what Meg's perceiving Angela to be doing is rebutting the system that she's already lived through. Mm the adolescent meat grinder that is high school rape culture and she's already gone through that so i feel like she gets so angry at angela because angela is refusing to play that game now there's more going on with angela inside her head for that but i think that ties into her planned date with mel in the sense that meg is someone who has learned to operate within those treacherous territories navigating between childhood and adulthood. And for whatever she's gone through, one of the things that she seems to value or understand are relations Mm -hmm. to power. She is a camp counselor. He is the guy who runs the camp. And he is an older male authority figure. So it feels like it's something that she gravitate towards or see as appealing
1: that's a really good read um yeah i would have not have guessed the film to have enough depth for you to make an analysis like that but i think (laughs) i think we're so accustomed to the power dynamics in all of our relationships that they just naturally happen right and there's a lot of power Mm -hmm. dynamics happening in this film
0: Yeah, take Judy, another example of someone who's going through that system, part of the reason that she is as heightened a character and as campy a character as she is, is because she is now being initiated into those puberty rituals.
2: Yeah, and from the the get-go, like, before we even see Judy, they are describing the effects that puberty has had on her body, and that has become, like, her focal point. It's no longer, oh yeah... Judy's here and missed you. it's Judy's here and now she has boobs. Okay. But like, is she a person to you anymore? And there's a sort of feeling of that from the get-go that these people are all in yeah, forgive the wording and very transitive stage, right? Everything <laughs> is changing for everyone very quickly. And for some people, a lot more is changing than others, you know? So I think I think as well as part of why specifically teenage films and sort of singular locations like this feel like I said like this heightened reality is because the teenage experience is one of everything feels so much all the time. <laughs> so much is happening all the time and I think that can be a very overwhelming sensation and partly quite a horrific sensation. You don't really understand a whole bunch of what's going on and things are changing without your permission. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be inherently quite scary. Oh,
1: absolutely. And and so much of the heightening, I feel like, is that sense that um, the guardrails are off, like the training wheels are off in this experience Mm -hmm. because the adults around you either are ineffective or they don't care, right? So you... I think that it's this exhilarating experience for these characters, but also a terrifying experience in some ways. You know, I was thinking about, as I'm watching this film, you know, as the, the campers are filing in from the buses, you see these adults standing there. They're the kitchen staff, and they're watching the kids file in. And the first thing this pedophile guy says is, I don't even want to repeat what he says because it's so disgusting, but he basically is sexualizing it's young girls, right? Red. And um, yeah. and then he looks over to another adult character and in my mind, even having seen this film before, I'm expecting this character to repudiate what the first guy has said because it's so offensive. To go, uh,
2: hey yes.
1: No, absolutely. But no, not. he just smiles and laughs. Like that's the extent yeah. to which right. there are no adults here. There are no grown ups. Yeah. It's just misogyny all the way down. Mm-hmm.
2: He, like, very half-heartedly is like, oh, you shouldn't say that, but then laughs a lot. Yeah, it's like, like, oh, it's you. All, all about you. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, classic you. And it's like, not classic right, you. Right,
0: and that's uh, that's Robert Earl Jones. That's James Earl Jones' dad. Are you yes.
2: Yeah. you can
1: hear it too. You can. Oh my gosh, the the that Beso uh, voice is yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah,
0: Owen Higgins as Artie, who is the the pedophile, the chief cook.
2: Fair play to this man because he played that so character well. in the way where I'm like, I never want to see your voice yes. again.
1: <laughs> so vile. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm. Done with looking at you So yes. <laughs> sorry to this man But also good job mm-hmm. I guess uh, To to go back to
0: what you were saying Lila, um, Paul comes into the scene And he's mm-hmm. supposed to be The nice guy love interest But you get right from the beginning Where he's describing Judy's body That he's subject to this Culture of toxic masculinity And he, and he just keeps pushing it Further, stealing kisses Not taking no for an answer
1: And like in a lot of slasher films
0: he means it in because of it.
1: But Ooh. the film, let's be clear, the film excuses his behavior, right? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, the film, and even when he sort of quote unquote cheats on Angela, it's made clear that the film wants us to understand that it's because he was manipulated by a devil woman. Right?
2: Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the woman's fault, not his. Always. Don't be silly. Oh, Paul.
1: Oh, oh Paul. Paul. Oh,
2: Paul. <laughs>
0: We're not going to hit this beat per beat. If you want to, if you
1: dare, you can go watch Sleepaway Camp. It's on Peacock, so you can watch The Office and then you can go watch Sleepaway Camp. Yeah, those are two things things that go together. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Look,
2: if we have to watch it, so do all of you. That's how it's going. Mm -hmm. So Angela is not
0: fitting in with her bunkmates. Bodies start dropping. Uh, Meanwhile, Ricky is kinda of living it up. It's Jonathan Tiersten playing the cousin slash brother figure. I'll, tell, I'll say this. Ricky, he's an ally. Ricky knows. I I know in my heart of hearts that Ricky knows all about Angela.
1: Defense are almost to a hysterical level. Almost to a hysterical level.
2: Mm-hmm. Which is how you know. <laughs> right. right. Right? That's yeah. the tell. The yeah, there's sort of a a fear for mm-hmm. her and and the way he acts of like I I have to be there because if I'm not, I don't know how this is going to turn out and yeah, almost hysterical in that way, but I agree potentially. That's fellow. an
1: interesting question though, like does Ricky know? Mm-hmm. Because he's there when Aunt Martha is like saying uh, no one needs to know where these medical records came from wink wink, nudge nudge
2: Yeah, that's a crime, that's a crime.
1: Which means nothing to you when you're first watching the film. It's sort of a meaningless bit of business. But means everything, obviously, Mm -hmm. once Mm -hmm. you understand what the the twist is. So does Ricky know?
0: So I think Mm -hmm. that he does. And here's how I come about that. So the scene that we're talking about is right before they go to camp, Aunt Martha, who is Desiree Gould, she has tied a ribbon around her finger to remind <laughs> okay. her of something, and that is their physicals. Because she is also a doctor, which is how she's kind of mm-hmm. managed this. So she gives them their physical and tells them not to tell where they got them from. And, I mean, Ricky's there, firstly, and they're a family. They share a home. So I, I think he knows, willful ignorance notwithstanding But I also attribute his attitude in the scene to the fact that he has watched his mother slowly become this caricature Mm -hmm. of a person. Mm -hmm. Because she's not just neurotic, she's also a divorcee in the early 80s. And and she is just lit up like a Christmas tree full of those tropes. Her whole arc is my husband has left me and I've lost it. But maybe if I can find a way to win him back, maybe if I had a daughter.
2: Well, Well, she's almost sort of, not hysterically, but almost obsessively trying to recreate this nuclear family, right? Mm -hmm. This, oh, I I have a son and a daughter and a husband and we're together and everything is great and fine and it's wonderful, thank you. To the point where, yeah, almost obsessively, like, that is what we are and that is what we do and everything is great and fine and don't ask questions and don't worry about it and that's totally fine. And I think it's interesting to read that as, yeah, divorces in the 80s still not sort of as ubiquitous as it is now as well looked upon of like sure yeah fine whatever so she is trying to like that control the system she's in still the same way we see Meg and Judy trying to do right of like well if I have to operate in it I want a say in where I have power and where Aunt Martha thinks she has power as if she can replicate this ideal. And yeah, I wonder if that plays a part in everything that she does. Everything that she does and her whole affectation.
0: Oh, I I completely think it does. And just to jump back to Ricky for a second. So he has lived with Aunt Martha his whole life. And to the point which she was clearly not always this person. Something has happened to her that has changed her. She is... Neurotic, absent minded.
2: I am obsessed with Aunt Martha. Oh,
0: I love her.
2: <laughs> like, objectively, probably the actual villain of this mm-hmm. movie, but also, what a vibe, what an energy is occurring there.
0: Oh, 100%. So, something has affected Aunt Martha, and she has become this character. So, I think Ricky has seen her slide into neuroticism and also was there, was still probably about the same age as Angela or Peter when they brought them home from the hospital and even though I think that's a very isolated family condition, come on, you find that out and then you don't necessarily say anything because you have a solidarity and bond, this family bond and I think that they really do care about each other. You know, there are even theories both between Felissa Rose and Jonathan Tierston, and with fans that Ricky might have been in on it. Oh. I
2: have seen those, which I think are plausible, or at the very least that, again, Ricky knew. I wouldn't be surprised if Ricky's role is that of, like, a confidant or someone who knows things but doesn't necessarily have to take part. So I think even that role is important insofar as... The experience that Angela is going through is very isolating and having just someone you know is on your side and will listen to you um, about whatever you want to tell them is probably quite helpful, whether that is, hey, I'm uncomfortable with what's happening here, or So maybe I murdered someone, and we're just gonna move on from that today.
0: (laughs) By the way, those actors dated on the set. They actually went through a breakup on the set, too.
2: Wild. Hiltzik had described them as
0: throwing arrows at each other.
2: Whoa. As if we didn't need to add another (laughs) layer to this.
0: Right? There are times where you see small things, like, during one of the kills, Angela cuts a bathroom screen to uh, to get to a dude who's taking a wicked dump, in his own words. <laughs> and where does she get the knife? They introduce a knife in Ricky's bunk. Oh. Mozart pulls that knife and oh, then Gene yeah. takes it away, so he knows that that's somewhere. Oh, I'm yeah. not saying it's the same knife, but it's, why would you introduce that to not use it later?
2: It's a real Chekhov's knife going on. Chekhov's
1: dump, knife.
2: <laughs> Mm, That's the Shout line. out, Chekhov's
0: Dump
1: Night. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to point out, and this is as good a moment as any, just how much the diegetic mu- music in this film absolutely slaps. I don't know if you guys noticed it, but this time around, I was, de- I was looking around the corners for all the de- details I could spy, and one of the things that really hit me was how great the music is. It's this just... It's so good. Tinny, 80s... Just sort of like vague pop Mm -hmm. music, and it's awesome.
0: Yeah, rules. One of those is Frankie Vincy's Angela's Theme. So it's the one that comes on right after the shot in the credits, but it's also used in uh, in the canteen. Okay. When Ricky and Paul come in and he's got the cowboy hat <laughs> yes. on.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: I think it's in that scene, it might be another one, but they use a version of it there. And it's a fun song in the credits, too. Yeah. You know, I almost wish they'd given us 10 minutes of that song and then
2: her killing <laughs> the rest of the camp. <laughs> Where's that cop? I can get behind that. I want that cop to move.
0: There's so many little things within the film. Yeah. Like the baseball game. Eat, shouldn't die, Ricky. Yeah. Eat, shouldn't live, Bill. <laughs> That's yeah. a great
2: moment. Which, that baseball, great line. That baseball game goes, it goes for up for so goes for so long. long.
1: It's so long. It's the editing tragedy. So he does but that. Yes, it's compelling yeah. to watch. Uh huh
0: he has this habit of holding on long shots and a part of that is that they had one camera from from my understanding mm-hmm. please write in if i'm wrong out to get you podcast at gmail.com we want to hear but he will hold on these long shots and like a scene will move through them so there's not those constant cutaways mm-hmm. and it it's an interesting thing to me because it's not something that we're used to in a lot of films that were contemporary to it
2: I think as well, especially with something like the baseball game, the fact that it lingers so long on that allows for a space where it is quite literally lingering on the rituals of yes. adolescence and of adolescent boyhood and of what that means and how these people interact with each other. and. Um, part of that is just sort of examining that and letting you sit in that moment with them, but also, look, I'm gonna say it: baseball is inherently a lot about homoerotic. I no argument, no arguments here. No, are we talking about homoerotic? <laughs> like that's just how it rituals?
1: Because can we talk about <laughs> the, the magic trick that they're performing on oh, the Mozart magic trick at the beginning of the film, which the leads thing. directly into a whole
2: bunch of this film. non-consensual
1: analingus, like.
2: Yeah, it doesn't
1: get much more homoerotic than that. Yeah,
2: the whole film, just various homoerotic initiation rituals.
0: Yeah, it feels like there's a lot of unintentional mm-hmm. gay male gaze. You know, rather than the more gratuitous TNA, you you come to expect from slashers. But here, it's like uh, I'm gonna grab my balls and my dick in some like really tight underwear, or I'm gonna wear like the shortest shorts imaginable, or I'm gonna <laughs> trick my friend <laughs> into putting his face into another guy's ass.
2: The shorts were yes. so
0: short. Oh my god,
1: the the head counselor, oh, like, Ronnie. You know, for all of his charms, his body is incredible, and he. Uh he shows it. I off, know there are at least a few I?
0: people on that set who definitely brought their own costumes yeah. and it shows and I love that. I love that for them, I love that for me, <laughs> I love that for everyone who is on set with them.
2: I do. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that all of those like ongoing rituals that we tap in and out of and get to see parts of create like a I think part of it is also like it doubles down on how isolating the experience is for Angela because when you see those put together, these are very intricate rituals that theoretically Angela could have been a part of had they not ended up with Aunt Martha. And I wonder if part of that, like those cuts between Angela having such a hard time in the girls' cabin and being bullied so heavily, and then all of these intricate rituals with the boys only sort of serve how isolating it all is. Um, yeah, I wonder if that's part of it.
0: So we've talked a lot about Angela, mm-hmm. but I think it's important within the context of this narrative, which, as we've discussed previously, is it's not going to clean up in a one-to-one identity, right? Mm-hmm. Angela doesn't see herself as a girl, right? Like she's a boy. That's how they frame it at the end, it, even in the language, she's a boy. Uh, so Kale Keegan had been writing an article about the reclamation of bad trans movies. That is in like culturally and in this case also you know, a little bit materially. And they had written that this is a film that sympathetically, if unintentionally, explores the specifically trans masculine experience of a boy who is forcibly assigned female and socialized as a girl. Initially, we are likely to read Angela's reticence to join the girls in gossiping, her awkwardness with the boys as evidence of lack of maturity, but we find out that it might be more so they don't feel like Mm. one of the girls. You know, they don't want to gossip, they don't want to play volleyball, because they are not Mm. Angela, they're Peter. And so that's not something that you get a lot of in film at all. So I think that it's it's very interesting how you can look at how they're kissing Paul, their reactions to that, them on the bench, them sitting away, as Angela rejecting that cohort. It's not something that you see further in the films as they go to Boy Camp 2 and onward and onward, though, fun fact, Angela is then played by Pamela Springsteen, yeah. Bruce Springsteen's sister. And they go on in more definition in those movies to classify, as they can, Angela as a trans woman. But in this film, they have it boxed in such a way that it doesn't connect in that one-to-one ratio of like, are they transsexual? Are they transgender? Are they a transvestite? Are they a boy who's been forcibly transitioned? Or after enough time, does that no longer matter in the way that their identity isn't expressed? Are they now simply whoever is Angela. To take it to a place of the GSCE for a minute, which for the uninitiated is one of the several intrusive and baleful forms that trans people have to fill out for cis doctors when we are trying to obtain surgery. They ask you such ridiculous questions like, when did you first have gender dysphoria? Or what made you think you were a different gender? And I filled these out and personally, I had to make some shit up because I don't remember that far back, and they want you to qualify it in terms that are Mm -hmm. kind of preposterous. I mean, I'm 37 now, and I'm filling out something to describe what it felt like when I knew I was different at seven. That person that was is not who I am now. And fuck, you know, here I, I stand, completely replaced, atoms and all.
1: I'm just yeah, I'm I'm floored by all the things that you have just said and I need a minute to recuperate. Oh and and bring it all bring it all back in. This is a a safe space. I appreciate that because I am now starting to identify with Angela in a way that I hadn't previously, which is It's a lot. Which is the the confusion around identity, Mm -hmm. right? I think if we allow Angela room to be confused about her gender identity and her Sexuality and I think there is Confusion in there about sexuality Because there's moments Where Angela seems to be genuinely enjoying Her little tryst with Paul yes, And seems to be into it Right and then remembers Giggling at the sight Of her father with His male lover Let's talk about that for a moment Can we talk about that yeah There are a few
0: scenes that were not shot at the camp They were shot much after And they come up in two main places. One is when Angela is on the beach. She has now had a goodnight kiss from Paul. This is like they're going out to the beach. They're being playful. They seem to be enjoying it. And then when he goes to unbutton her blouse, she has this flashback. It takes place in a dreamlike, ethereal, unreal setting. It's almost like a stage production. There is a shot of her dad and her dad's lover, Lenny. It's very tender. The actors have talked about it. As campy and as corny as it seems to us now, they really wanted to show intimacy within their performance. And on that, you know, I think they did as good a job as they could. They they didn't do a bad job. But it's framed from this view of them as this unique object of experience. And their kids, Angela and Peter, are watching from just an open doorway. It's very (laughs) play-acting, skin kind of thing. (laughs) They're pointing and giggling and laughing, so they see that there is something that is unusual about it. And they're giggling at it. It's Mm -hmm. paired in that same scene as a shot of the two of Mm -hmm. them on their bed pointing at each other. And it's this kind of disillusion Mm -hmm. of a single person. There's Peter and there's Angela. And in that moment, it's like, who is there being absorbed? Because in a lot of those older representations outside of our hands of trans people, they will show, like, the warring Mm. factions or the warring sides of someone's gender. And so it's it's so bizarre. It's deeply weird. It is. So (laughs) we have to wonder how that plays into what Angela is experiencing. Because if she sees herself as a boy... Then she might be relating back with
1: Paul the the relationship that her father had. That's with my read is that mm-hmm. the latent homophobia yeah. kicks in, and then she beheads him. Yeah, just a little, a, a little, little much, extravagant of right? a reaction, but that's what we're getting. Yeah. But
0: that's because it's not just hormonal rage, but they're in this pressure cooker, right? It's summer; the kids are all together, and they can't leave. And like in school or any kind of tightly packed yeah. adolescent environment. There's a lot of emotions boiling over. And for someone who doesn't get a release, when Angela explodes, the fire burns everywhere. Yeah. Right? You know, that's how I justify her killing the kids. There there are small children who are killed in the film that don't really tie too much back. Like, they kind of mocked her when she got thrown in the Mm -hmm. water. But they don't really do anything
1: so... Yeah,
2: they are revenge in the same way.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's, yeah. it's a spree killing with the kids. It's, yeah, it's collateral damage. Out of character mm-hmm. with some of the other murders, for sure.
0: And I, I sort of see, like, her violence, this wildfire that's coming out. Before we get too far from this, we get another scene in that weird otherworldly mm-hmm. environment. Right before the reveal, and it's done in Aunt Martha's house. But it's not the house. It is a dreamlike version of it because they couldn't get back to shoot there. So if you'll notice that it's also in that ethereal space. Mm. There's black behind one of the open doorways. They've hand-painted the wallpaper. Like this weird dream world where Aunt Martha is telling Peter that they're going to be Angela now. And you have to wonder if that's sort of how that memory exists to Angela. If it's like the compartmentalization of how they can process that.
2: like a lot of those... A lot of those like dreamlike sequences do kind of represent this confusion that's going on. And honestly, part of me really appreciates the idea that Angela's given space in her own narrative to be confused by these things. I think, especially for people who are not queer in any way, for people who are cis het they often like that, like you were saying earlier, the question of like, oh, when did you know? Or like, how did you know? And it's like, Look, I sped run like a whole spectrum of things to get to where I'm at now. I kind of just figured it out as I went and I don't think it's always as cut and dry as I I knew at this age because of this and that's that. For some people it is and that's great. For a lot of people it's, well this doesn't feel quite right, so what if I tried this? Or no, this has happened and it's made me reevaluate things and etc etc So I think
0: you've had one dead name. Why yeah. not another?
2: <laughs> it's like sure, there's that. There's like you know what people talk all the time about like the pipeline. I I went down a whole pipeline of like hey I'm gonna start here as just like a real a real <laughs> big ally. I'm just a real big ally. Guys. I said promise that's all it is. And then it's like, okay, but no, and <laughs> I have to go through every single stage in that spectrum for. I'm like, okay, this makes sense. I just had to stop off at like three other places first before I figured anything out.
0: And having room to explore that, which Angela doesn't get. Exactly. In fact, putting her in summer camp is like lighting a match to a gunpowder trail that rolls through the camp to a pile of dynamite. Yeah. When you put her in that environment, she has nowhere to be an outlet. She has nowhere to be alone. She always has eyes Sucks. on her. And so that tells me why she sort of backs off everything You know, like when you're closeted You don't want anyone to know You know, you don't want to reveal it's those like tells People to
2: perceive things
0: Right? Like when I was a kid Ooh. I got called a lot of things Turns out they were mostly right <laughs> Real mean, but mostly right Because yeah, they'll see us before we see ourselves
1: But it is, it is true that The camp is like this microcosm of the Mm -hmm. meat grinder of the patriarchy, right? And so these kids are being put through this with absolutely no escape. There is no room to do anything other than what you're being told to do. And it's all done in terms of like these very rigid, gendered expectations. It's all our, it's like Meg awesome. says
0: if you're not going to participate, you're just going to sit there and do nothing, not talk to the boys. It is yeah. the system bringing in new enforcers of the system.
1: Yes. And, and that system necessarily is going to destroy those of us who can't, for whatever reason, be extruded through the Plato fun factory of genderification. And, of course, you know, Angela just, you know, explodes. There's a
0: quote by B.J. Colangelo that is really good. And it's, the problem is not Angela Baker. The problem is the world and the circumstances that surround her. From Aunt Martha through the end of that film and presumably into the sequels, but we're focusing on just this one today.
1: You know, something that just occurred to me, and this is apropos of absolutely nothing, but this whole experience, the entire film, the plot Mm -hmm. of it, Caused by a woman driver.
0: Yes, okay, thank you for saying that. <laughs> it starts right there. Uh, so yeah. maybe now's a good time to get to our second question. Ooh. Let me pull this up. This is from friend of the pod, Sam Guido, and he sent in a last minute question. I'm gonna read it here. Hello, I'm so excited for a queer horror podcast. I've always been fascinated with horror. So I've only started getting into horror movies over the past year or so. I love that for you. (laughs) Uh, My love of horror is so intertwined with my queer and trans identity, I'm excited to see an exploration of that. I went into Sleepaway Camp completely blind, and was really enjoying it as a fun slasher with some gory deaths, and then it ends on such a bizarre note with the final image for shock value and no resolution. I still think it has a lot of great moments. This movie is good at showing how cruel children can be to one another, and Angela slash Peter is very sympathetic. One of my first thoughts after the reveal was, I hated being treated like a girl, too. And this goes back to what we were saying about, like, seeing that masculine experience that Angela goes through. But Sam continues, my question is about the reveal that their father was gay, which seems super disconnected from the rest of the movie. Was this detail just for shock value, or do you think there's a more interesting interpretation? The way the rest of the movie goes, it seems like Angela would have been better off living with Lenny rather than her aunt. Super excited for the three of you to unpack this very messy movie, (laughs) Sam Guido. So it's 1983 in New York, right? AIDS has been creeping up into public consciousness and queer bodies and the threat or possible contagion that they bring has been seeping into a wider cultural consciousness. Like, it's still being ignored massively, but this was an experience a lot of people were seeing. And so to have two gay men in a loving relationship, one of them taking care of children, and then having that character die immediately almost feels like Mm -hmm. retribution for being that kind of person, for going against those social mores. But also, it's why... Angela doesn't go with Lenny there's no way For them to get custody and there was no Way that it would go to anyone but a blood Relative So in a lot of ways what happens In the film and what happens to Peter slash Angela is the result of Us ignoring Plights in our communities
1: Yeah and I I don't think that The I don't think the homosexuality Angle is there just for shock value I think That it is it's there Mm -hmm. To Show us a different dimension mm-hmm. of transgressiveness, right? That Angela yes. is reacting against.
0: And these are people in their adolescence growing up. Is that question that everyone always ends up asking? Yeah. Am I going to end up like my parents? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when Angela is having those moments of confusion when she's making out with Paul, that's when that flashback occurs. And she makes that direct comparison to see if that's who yeah. she is becoming.
1: Yeah, that juxtapos- yes. juxtaposition is very deliberate.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I
2: think yeah. that's
0: where we land on yeah, that one. I think
2: a lot of it is, like you're saying, that in a lot of cases it is a fear of, um I going to, am I going to be like my parents, uh, or perhaps even in this case. Have they created this in me? Like, is this something I would feel if not for who my parents were?
0: Social contagion, right? right.
2: Um, And I think, especially at this time, that with homosexuality was a legitimate fear in cultural consciousness that this was something that could be, for want of a better word, caught that it could be something that you would learn from seeing it around you, right? And I wonder if there's part of Angela that is responding to
1: that fear. I mean listen, I that's how I got homosexuality was by kissing oh, other yeah. homosexuals. Yeah, that's and...
2: definitely how I got it. It's great. Big fan would recommend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel
0: like there's so much we could unpack and try to untangle, but like you were saying in the beginning, Lila, it's like how much do we want to?
1: Mm-hmm. I think
0: this is a great artifact of a movie and it's good that we can still talk about it and look at it because we're contending with our past. You know, we had talked on our very first episode, which is out on Anatomy of a Scream. If you want to go check that out, we talk about Bit. It's another movie that has a trans lead. It's very rare. This one is actually trans. And one of the discussions deals with like how representation is done from people who aren't of the communities they're representing. And unlike... Friend of the pod, Brad Elmore, he actually sent us a really nice email, so thank you. He took care to go out. He made a reading list. He started learning about who he wanted to help represent and put into his movie, and also listen to the voices around him. That wasn't happening in 1983. It wasn't happening on this set, and I think that that is where you sort of have to draw the line, because you can see where the intent was. You can see what's come out of it.
2: Especially with, especially with this movie, any sort of queer representation that acts as like this sort of artifact to our own past and to the past that's been put on us, like you said, is going to have a real, your mileage may, may vary moment for anyone, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, some things to you will really resonate and will be worth the work that it takes to reclaim them, whether that is having to recontextualize characters or decisions or anything along the way, or even just having to make peace with all of those things for some people that work is worth it, for others they would rather be like not for me, absolutely not, I don't want to think about this movie, and I think that's equally as valid mm-hmm. um, I think there is space for both responses, especially to a film as controversial as this so I wouldn't be surprised no matter which way it went for people and i think either way would be understandable i think especially in this situation
1: i mean like like i said before you know we only are talking about this film because of its grotesquery, because of its excesses right otherwise it would be a Mm -hmm. a completely forgettable slasher film that's a direct ripoff of friday the 13th right so the fact that we're talking about it at all means that we as queer people resonate with something and it gives us, a, if nothing else, the opportunity to have the conversation.
0: Right. And I right? think that's just important. There's nothing wrong with it being what it is. One thing that I wanted to discuss was Angela's sexuality, both mm-hmm. in the film and also, Felicia Rose has a theory that Angela, as she is trying to discover her sexuality, is wondering if she might have a thing for Judy. And you know, you can see that when she is staring at Judy, seeing her put together her bunk. I would also say that Judy's kill is the most sexual kill in the movie. While Paul's is more intimate, Judy's definitely feels more sexual. Very clearly, because it is female genital mutilation. But I think that that one is, is a more sexual kill and that Paul's is more yeah. about mm-hmm. her making a choice. She doesn't make necessarily a life-affirming choice, mm-hmm. but she makes one.
2: A choice nonetheless.
1: No, it's 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 very thanatotic, the choice. Like, there's this tenderness of, like, she's mm-hmm. cradling the, the head. And singing that right? little song. And singing a little song. You know, when you put the the idea of is she attracted to judy and making that question it really gives that whole like wife goals or life goals concept a very different kind of a twist right it's like do i want to go ahead and be okay with being a woman right right? which is a choice i could make or is it that i want a woman and this is a, a thing that i think a lot of trans feminine people wrestle with Am I attracted to to womanhood, or I, am I a woman? Or I'm attracted. To, what was it that I want? It's all tangled up with desire. Um, I want to talk about I want to talk about Mel for a second because we haven't really discussed Mel. And there's two really great, iconic Mel moments in this film. Uh, the first is when Mel comes across Megs. Yeah, and this body. is Mike Kellen, by
0: the way. He's a, it's a famous character actor from the 50s and 60s and 70s. And this was his last film.
1: Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And, and he, he bellows, Not you, Meg. Not you. Which I love <laughs> because it's it's an incorrect line reading. And I, I love when incorrect line readings get captured on film. That is a
0: really great Mike Kellen line. And then there's also his death. Yes. So, throughout the film, Mel has been trying to brush off all the death in the camp. With the the cook, he pays off the other guys in the kitchen. He tries to pay off and almost intimidate the sheriff into saying it was an accident.
1: Yeah. And there's some really amazing grotesquerie there, too, with the snake, the little baby snake coming out of the boy's mouth. Ugh! So gross.
2: Yes. Mm, uh, really good.
0: And that's another place the Ricky thing comes in, because they used him as a stand-in. For Angela in shot, so when they do the POV shots in the film, they're using okay. Ricky's actor. So those are his mm-hmm. hands you see on the chair. When the canoe is tipped over, that who oh. pops up in the water. They used a the wig to make it look like Angela. So while that's a little behind the scenes, that's a little Clever. bit in there Clever, too.
1: Clever. The snake is probably the best. It's certainly the Absolutely. most natural. Actor. Best
0: boy grip. Yeah.
1: But Mel getting the arrow through his neck I think is the, my it's favorite It's a great practical
0: effect so It's something that mm-hmm. today's audiences will think nothing of it When they don't consider when this was made Yeah, That was a practical effect They built up this like fake mm-hmm. neck And you can see the <laughs> line on his throat in the yeah. film I don't really know the specifics But there's a thing on the back that pops out the it's rest
2: Very cool. It's very cool
0: That's
2: great I enjoy it
1: And then also when he's when Mm -hmm. he's trying to beat Ricky to death and it's almost it's there's something ape-like about it. He's just sort of smashing like kind of like Donkey Kong. um. And Ricky in the original script died there. Oh, the cost of allyship. The
0: cost of allyship. Right. I mean, I think that Meg's kill is kind of neat. In the aftermath, because she goes to shower next door because they have consolidated bunks due to all of Angela's trophies. And, again, using Ricky's actor, they cut through the shower, which must be made of cardboard. Mm -hmm. Cut straight down through her back. I like the bee kill.
2: I like the bee kill.
0: Bee wranglers. Any kind of wrangler on a set, I'm usually really into there's a spider wrangler I believe on Hellraiser, there was a bee wrangler here, I just I just love a, a creature wrangler.
1: I like the idea of creatures that need to be wrangled.
2: I don't know for sure, but I imagine uh, the witch would absolutely have needed a goat wrangler for one <laughs> singular goat. I bet there was a goat wrangler, and respect to them, couldn't have been me oh can i uh put a pin in
1: yeah. uh, one of my favorite judy lines oh i know it <laughs> do you what do you think it she's is? a
0: real carpenter's dream flat as a board and <laughs> okay.
1: that is indeed the line i just feel like we couldn't let this discussion end yes. without highlighting it <laughs> so good
0: well thank you so much for joining us this has been an absolute
1: blast I'm surprised that it was way less sticky yeah. than I thought it would be to talk about. Yeah. You know, like, once you get past discussing that image, it really, you know, it, it really becomes a pleasant conversation, which I, I I was expecting to be a little more fraught than it was. So I'm very happy with how this, this whole thing went.
2: I think there's something very nice and metaphorical in that when you get past the initial fear an image of queerness for yourself can elicit, there becomes a conversation that is winding and one of discovery more than one of terror. And I think there's an interesting metaphor there of like, hey, maybe this first image for you is scary or grotesque or difficult or sticky. But if, if you can sit with it for a minute, you'll find that actually there's something to discover along the way that could be very interesting.
0: Yeah, and, you know, just to come back to that shot for a minute. So if we didn't paint the picture clearly, which, God help us
2: (laughs) if we did. We didn't want to.
0: So the last shot when you actually see Angela exposed, it was shot in late October in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Hiltzik is, himself has called it sort of a magic evening, I believe. Oh. Uh, that there were beers were being passed around and it felt like something was different. And honestly, what you do see on screen, which is, again, it's like a horrifying representation of trans bodies. as it, violent. And when you see who was Felissa Rose, just this little sweet child, and then you cut to the shot where you see her exposed, then... She is in this hyper-masculine body, which is done by, uh, I think, Artie Liberace was the the college student's name. He had a couple of beers. He had to stand naked in this field. It was cold as hell. Mm. His body is tensed up. He's got that mask on, which is this this grotesque representation, and then that guttural sound that comes out of him. And it's, it's a very Lynchian-looking image, mm. right? It's, it's the kind of horror that you set through the rest of the movie, and that's the payoff, because that's the thing that it doesn't have to do anything. It can just stand there. Yeah. But being exposed to it is the horror. And it plays to this entitlement of trans bodies by cis people, and the the hyper-masculinization and projection of trans feminine people. Because then, when you think about that in retrospect, that's how she was able to push over that chair, that's how she was able to lift those bodies, that's how she was able to kill all those kids without them getting away, Mm -hmm. is that now you know that like she has become this other thing that is impure. That's how
1: she's able to win at sports, right? right Um. (laughs) somebody
0: better do something about this one teenage girl single teenage
1: girl which is very it is very interesting right because it does ask the viewer to then recontextualize how she could have committed those murders right Mm. but in reality the actress is a very petite
0: Girl. It's again, that duality that comes about yeah. in things like fascism, where your enemy is both incredibly yes. strong yes, and yet yes, yes, somehow yes. they're feeble and weak.
2: Yeah. Gotta be both.
0: Not that we've ever had to deal with anything like yeah. that, but it's a classic.
2: Straight <laughs> out of the playbook, that
0: one. And I guess that's Sleepaway Camp, folks. Look at us. <sighs> we did it. We did it. So, Lila, do you have anything that you would want to plug right now? I know that Dune came out back in December. Uh-huh. Uh, but let the folks know where we can find you. What to look forward to? What you got going on?
1: You can find me on Twitter at uh, Lila Sturgis. Um, that's primarily where I can be found on the internet. I have a book coming out later this year, which is a horror graphic novel called *The Science of Ghosts*. That has a oh, I am excited. That has a transgender woman protagonist. So
2: well, look at that.
0: More yeah. of it. Some of my favorite horror books lately have have all been that. You know, given, I'm biased, but <laughs> you know, I've been telling folks to go out and read *Manhunt* and to read uh, *Tell Me I'm Worthless*. And it's just like seeing more of us get this opportunity in in terms of being able to put our stamp on horror is really, really—it's nice, giving right? me it's life
1: nice to be able to to take the reins of it and put your spin on it as a trans person rather than see yourself just reflected in the the, whatever warped mirror you're being reflected in right
0: right that reflection of the public fears Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of who we are rather than any kind of internalization yeah and it's fun
2: too because it's like a fun house mirror reflection really everything is wrong and distorted and
1: i didn't feel the need to make this this trans character you know perfect or unimpeachable she's messy Mm -hmm. she has issues she's got problems and I love that for her, and I love that I was able to make that book in that way, yeah.
0: you know? That's what I like to yeah, see. Like, we are raised on Queer Coded Villains, we've talked about this before, you know, people who have come up in the aftermath of the Hayes Code, that we really do enjoy those kind of characters, and we do not need to have perfect representation we just need more representation Yes. Yeah, yeah.
2: it's, it's about having a, a wealth of stories not every story is going to be for everyone that's why we just need more of them
1: yes and not having to carry the burden of, of every trans feminine experience yeah you know exactly. now is really nice for sure
0: lila thank you so much yeah, for joining thank us you. keep an eye out for the science of ghosts. that is going to be on my list sure. so you can find us on twitter as well condolences to us both at out to get you pod we are also on instagram but by the time you hear this which will be early summer great time for sleepaway camp questions will be closed for bram stoker's dracula with gretchen falker martin as well as the 2011 remake of fright night with zoe Tunnell. we really do want to thank everybody for sending those in they are a lot of fun mm-hmm. i know that i've enjoyed them this week too Absolutely. so send them in at out to get you podcast at gmail.com Stay tuned and we'll see you before you see us.